Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalamo, and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. Many of the built environment's peak industry associations recognise the need for rapid decarbonisation and have publicly stated their commitment. But what does it mean in reality? This episode will focus on the practicalities and challenges facing those working towards zero carbon outcomes through the planning system and the opportunities they see to advance this ambition. This panel includes Executive Officer of the Council Alliance for a Sustainable Built Environment, also known as CASPI, Natasha Palish. Senior Sustainability Advisor at the Victorian Planning Authority, Peter Murrell. Environmentally Sustainable Development Advisor for the City of Yarra, Ewan Williamson, and Principal and Partner at the SGS Economics and Planning. I'll let our Chairperson, Director of Hanson Partnership and Vice President of PIA Victoria, Jane Keddy, begin the discussion. Uh, Before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we're holding this session, so the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Uh, and also to acknowledge their connection to country um, and the importance of that connection and the lessons we can learn uh, from traditional owners as we grapple with climate change. This session is really just a conversation, a a chance to explore uh, some of the challenges we face uh, in dealing with those big picture objectives uh, around decarbonisation. And we're so lucky today to be joined by a number of people who are very experienced in both identifying and responding uh, to some of these challenges. The focus of our session here is on decarbonising the built environment, um, and in particular, uh, on the varying objectives uh, and definitions of what is net zero. So the origin um, of this panel really rests with the commitment that's been made by numerous professional industry associations um, and by local governments in response to the scientific evidence base uh, around climate change and the need for urgent action. So the Planning Institute of Australia um, is one of many organisations which has declared a climate emergency and alongside this identified numerous actions that can be taken in the sphere of planning uh, to support this declaration. And one of the important aspects of these declarations is a recognition that our built environment should be decarbonised by 2030. Now, decarbonised means different things to different people (laughs) and different industry groups have different timeframes and different definitions. So for PIA, this is by 2030, all new buildings, infrastructure, and renovations will have at least 40% less embodied carbon with significant upfront carbon reduction and all new buildings are net zero operational carbon. So by 2050, new buildings, infrastructure, renovations will have net zero embodied carbon as well and all buildings, including existing buildings, must be net zero operational carbon. Now, that's a lot of work to get from where we are today to where we want to get to in that declaration. But this definition is drawn from an ASBEC declaration and represents one of the most common goals across industry associations. But one of the things all of these declarations do have in common is the need for us to get a move on. 2030 is less than eight years away. 
and we all know our planning system can move reasonably slowly. We do also need to acknowledge that planning has a particular function um, in its influence on the broader built environment. So planning is a system that's activated, so to speak, when there's new development or change occurring in the built environment. And it's when change or new development are proposed that we want to talk about today. That bigger issue that Ellen touched on of retrofitting decades worth of inefficient building stock and transforming our transmission systems is perhaps a conversation for another forum. But not adding building stock to the pool requiring retrofitting does seem a logical ambition. So what we hope to do today is to start an important conversation about the role that planning has to play in mitigation of climate change. And I think Ellen made a really important point about the fact that we need to think about mitigation and adaptation together when we're responding to this issue. But in this state, we have a built environment adaptation action plan, which recognises the importance of transitioning our built environment uh, to respond to climate change. But we do not yet, however, have clear direction or even explicit recognition of the role that planning plays in mitigating carbon emissions to the future. So today we're going to explore some of those issues around decarbonisation. We won't be able to cover all of the issues. And one of the commitments that the Planning Institute is seeking from, from any government um, formed in November is that we actually get serious about thinking about how we're going to get there. So we want a comprehensive roadmap to zero emissions in the built environment, which outlines some of the challenges we might touch on today and commits to concrete actions to respond to these. So without further ado, let's get to the first of my questions to the panel. So net zero, it seems everyone has a different definition of net zero. And then we have different opinions on which aspects of net zero should be dealt with through the planning system or dealt with through the building system. So the first area I want to explore is how do we and how should we define net zero in the context of a planning system? I think most people understand the concept of net zero more broadly uh, and the challenges I mentioned. And if you don't, there's some great work out there. Um, Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute uh, has some really good, uh, is a really good starting point. But in terms of the built environment specifically, what are we talking about? Are we talking about precincts? Are we talking about buildings? What about transport, waste? Are we talking about embodied carbon? I know for PIA we are, but are we in other contexts? So there's a lot of work going on in space. The Green Building Council Australia has put out a, a climate positive roadmap, which embeds the concept of net zero. Uh, and Ewan's touched on the fact that lots of local councils are coming together um, to seek uh, planning controls for net zero buildings. But there does still seem to be an absence of direction really at a state level about the role that the built environment plays. So what do we put in the ring from a planning perspective if we're achieving net zero? What can we put in now and what do we need to do some more work on to put in later? Bearing in mind, we don't have that much time until we get to 2030. And what do we need to resolve in order to put those things that we need to put in later into net zero? 
So Peter, I'm actually going to start with you with that question on net zero and everyone else feel free to jump in afterwards. How do you see net zero defined and how are you through the work that you're doing looking at what's in in terms of planning at a precinct scale? I was hoping you weren't going to come to me first, but that's okay. Um, our role is a little bit more specific to precincts, so um, I know the others will touch on probably other things as well, but um, our definition is based on kind of global protocols at the moment, so we're looking at that climate active carbon protocol um, for precincts, so it's a bit more defined, but it's a voluntary tool, so the state doesn't have any guidance or tools at the moment at a precinct scale, but we acknowledge that we have such an opportunity when we are planning for new precincts to decarbonize as, as soon as possible for, from, from day one. It's It sounds like it could be easier because it's, it's kind of a blank canvas, but in, in some ways it's potentially more challenging because it's not just about the built form and operational emissions. We are considering how we um, measure and abate transport and waste within the precincts. And we're finding it from our initial investigations with precinct planning, it is really challenging. It's a very challenging space. So I don't think this is going to happen overnight. We've got some years to kind of work through this, but it's up to government agencies to be starting this process right, right now. So that's kind of the case. I think we don't need to jump the gun. I think there's a lot of refining and testing with, with the development industry and with councils and with other agencies to understand what it is we need to do. Um, but in terms of good urban planning at a precinct scale, there's so much of the fundamental stuff we also need to be getting right first to ensure that we don't have to consider abatement of emissions and mitigation and offsetting into the future. So that good ur urbanism and good ESD design, good passive energy, um, good urban settlement planning layout, compact livable cities for walkability, all that stuff that fundamental stuff we really have to make sure we're getting right from day one but we also do need to define what a zero precinct looks like so we can plan for that and plan early i don't have the answer of, of exactly how we should do it because like i said we don't have any tools or guidance necessarily in victoria right now but i just do want to iterate that there's a real opportunity to precinct scale when we are planning for precincts that will just complement anything on, on that lot level as well i'm going to hand to some of the other uh, panelists in a minute but just as a follow-up question to, to that uh, so what i take from that is that there is perhaps one of the things we could do is fill that gap if you're if you like in terms of the guidance and the direction in terms of what the expectations are so that's an opportunity yeah so we've got we've got a gap in terms of making sure that we've got a clear understanding of what we want you've talked about the fact that the the operational side of things is perhaps achievable now but transport and waste there's a few things that we perhaps still need to resolve so that might be in a couple of years when we've when we've dealt with some of those issues and i might ask you to elaborate on some of those um, once the other panelists have had a chance to to talk but you didn't touch on embodied carbon is that something that that's being looked at at a precinct scale at all so we haven't addressed it and it's not because we don't want to just that we we were following the protocol with that climate active protocol and it didn't include embodied energy for when we're looking at precincts so that was just that scope that we did for specifically with arden the arden precincts where we were able to commit to a, a 2040 net zero target and we did the technical work to justify that but we didn't include embodied energy so again a gap in regulation and policy right now 
love this topic. It's great. And one of the reasons I love it is because I've been working on it for a couple of years. So I think I've got a few insights to share. So the definitions around zero carbon. Okay, so two and a bit years ago, the city of Yarra declared a climate emergency. They put out a climate emergency plan. And part of that plan said, we want zero carbon buildings. So part of my job was to define that and then figure out how to do it. So one of our very keen strategic planners undertook a, a research piece of international jurisdictions who'd already taken action on it. Vancouver, Toronto, New York, California, United Kingdom, the EU, all using the same definition of what a net, net zero carbon building is. So we felt our responsibility not to reinvent the wheel or confuse industry or confuse anyone and use the same standard definition of what a zero carbon building must be. It's a hierarchy. For those of you who may have looked at um, sustainable energy over the years will be very familiar with it. It's nothing new. The foundation is passive design and an efficient, thermally efficient built form, windows, floor, ceiling, walls. Second in the hierarchy is efficient services, energy efficient um, hot water systems, heating and cooling, lighting. The third bit, the smaller piece as you go up the hierarchy, the pyramid, is on-site renewable generation. And at the very top, if you can't generate everything that you need on-site, you purchase off-site renewable energy from a solar farm or a wind farm. And that's essentially what we're talking about. It's also the definition we've used has also been guided by international protocol on greenhouse gas reporting, as was entrenched previously in the National Greenhouse Energy Reporting Scheme. So that defines what a scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions are. What that does is defines in legal terms, carbon liability, who's responsible for which bit. It's not the responsibility of a public, public transport user to be responsible for the carbon emissions of a train or a tram. It's the owner of that infrastructure who's responsible for the emissions from that piece of infrastructure. So we have an international protocol. We have a consistent framework that we can slot into so to speak. In planning, we have an, a unique opportunity in Victoria because the planning system in Victoria sets performance standards for development, okay? It sets a goal. We can set that goal at net zero carbon. That can be the goal. Planning regulations are not well suited to detailed specific technologies. Your windows must have a U value of 1.6. That's not really the planning scheme that might be more suited to the building code. But what the planning scheme can do is set a measurable requirement for a building to perform at a certain standard and leave some options and flexibility for architects, designers, engineers to figure out how to deliver it if they can follow the, the hierarchy of net zero carbon, which is a, a internationally recognized industry framework. Currently, in 2022, we have the technology, the definitions, the mechanisms to deliver operational net zero carbon buildings today. This has been demonstrated in the last two years in the city of Yarra since declaring the climate emergency and announcing to our regular developers that this is what we will be pursuing. 20 major developments have stepped forward voluntarily and said, we can do this, and this is how we're going to do it. 
I've been talking to those architects and engineers and scrutinizing those design responses in great detail. And that's helped advise the drafting of new standards that we are preparing. Embodied carbon is not quite ready there. <laughs> so if you look at the definition of a net zero carbon building must be the carbon and the energy to, in the concrete and the steel and the, and the fabric of the building, as well as the operational emissions. However, when you go out to industry um, and regulators around Australia, there is not one simple tool to, to calculate that. In fact, there's over six. And guess what? They all give a different answer. So in 2022, we decided as, <laughs> that it was not appropriate to mandate or regulate for that because we don't have that measurement system locked down yet. We do for operational emissions, but not for embedded. Luckily, the New South Wales Environment Department, who runs the Neighbours tool, National Energy, hang on, rating, thank you. What's the stand for again? Thank you. The National Australian Built Environment Rating System is currently developing a, an Australian national framework for measuring embodied carbon, of which I occasionally join the meetings and have a look at. It looks incredibly rigorous. And hopefully they will do that part of the work for the rest of Australia. And we can pull that into a potential new planning scheme amendment, potentially, if we think planning is the right place for it in the future. I'm going to summarise before I'm going to hand the microphone back down to Ellen. But to summarise in terms of net zero, we've got some really good, uh, consistent global definitions that we can work to. In terms of what we can think about in the planning system at this at this stage, operational tick. Embodied, not quite yet, but, but we're, we're pretty close. We just need the actual framework so that we can measure things consistently and assess them. And, I'll, and I might touch, I will touch on some of the questions because I know things like uh, the, uh, the supply chain and the ability to actually provide the quantities of uh, low carbon materials, we might not be there yet. Uh, if, we, if we said today everyone needs to uh, have much lower emissions. So I think that's a really important conversation and discussion point to have. And it does tie into the role of regulation in sending a really clear signal to markets about what's going to be required uh, as we move into the, into the decade um, to come. So you didn't touch on transport and waste specifically. Is that something that you see as being included in, in, a, in a net zero definition? And I think you're talking primarily at building scale. Is that something you're looking at or is that something at a building scale where we're seeking to kind of make a contribution to as opposed to particularly defining? So I might get you just to maybe touch on that waste and transport issue and then hand over to maybe Ellen to get her thoughts. Yes, yeah, but on Jane, um, I think currently we can definitely facilitate and support um, zero carbon transportation systems and waste systems. Although in terms of the built environment, it's difficult to require or control that through planning regulations. There are some opportunities for increased bicycle parking, electric vehicle infrastructure, you know, four stream uh, waste management systems, et cetera, that can all enable it. But what I was referring to, I guess, before with the international protocol and greenhouse 
um, accounting in the reference to the scope one, two, and three emissions, you know, when it, the owner and operator of a landfill site, oh, which might be local government, <laughs> or it might be private industry, they are actually technically responsible for the emissions from that, from that site. So we can all play our part to reduce and, you know, compost as much on site and have those systems in place. So planning can play a role with space allocation for that. Planning can play a role for making sure those waste management systems can support that. But at the end of the day, the buck, the buck will stop with the operator of that landfill site. So we need to be mindful of how that works. Transportation is incredibly complicated. Um, again, there's opportunities at a planning uh, stage for a development to facilitate and support zero carbon transportation through reduction in car parking or zero car parking, allocation of bicycle parking, uh, um, active transportation, pedestrian access, all, the, all those fantastic sustainable transport solutions, but uh, is limited in its ability to say, require uh, an emissions uh, performance standard for all vehicles used on that site for the lifetime of the building. That would be a step beyond uh, where most <clears throat> lawyers would be happy to back me up at VCAT. Um, my background was in, is, <laughs> my background was in environmental science. I spent a lot of time looking at buildings. It's not in planning. So that was refreshing for me when coming into planning. And one of the things that someone first said to me, probably like the first week, was in planning, it's about what a building looks like, okay, and about space allocation. So if you can see something on the roof, like a solar array, then you can deal with it at planning. If a system like a rainwater tank to flush the toilets needs a space allocation, you can control that at planning. If it's something um, a little bit less, more esoteric than that, it's more and more difficult to regulate that at the planning stage. And sometimes I go back to that and go, can I see it? <laughs> Is there a space allocation? Yes, no, as a very simple test. I love that test. That's great. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, I think indeed in planning, of course, we need to think about that there's planning of in different layers. Planning is an embedded system. So you've got the planning at the side by side, the building level, then you've got the neighborhood, uh, the precincts, uh, then you go to a wider area again, uh, up to uh, the district or the region. And I think increasingly when we start talking about transport, for instance, we need to change the entire transport transport system. Uh, so planning will only be one of the players in there, but it's especially a key role there for strategic planning. Uh, so what will the entire region look like in 20 to 30 years time? And how do we electrify basically everything? Uh, electrify transport, electrify all the machines and things we use every day how do we do that? And I'm interested also, you and you, you mentioned in that hierarchy of, of uh, sustainable uh, operation of buildings at the top, somewhere at the top level that uh, you especially use a decentralized renewable energy. And I'm wondering, um, we see now, of course, so much investment happening in solar farms, wind farms. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually end up with a system where there's a lot of not necessarily on the household level, but those regional uh, or precinct level uh, energy 
generators and distribution systems. So that will be an enormous transition that goes beyond planning alone, where we need to work with uh, the transport sector, with the energy sector, and, and that needs a whole of government response. And that's often also i think where things still are failing a little bit at the moment we're doing a study which is quite related to it but on one specific area is around urban heat and there are so many plans around it why is the implementation not always happening you know what, what's failing there what what we see and i think that's applicable to this entire subject at many levels is that there's this uh, fragmentation of government effort um, so there's, uh, and especially I think locally, there's great leadership and lots of initiatives, but quite fragmented. And there's this disalignment between roles and responsibilities and who benefits and who pays for things. So that's a, a key one as well. If we probably look a bit further down in this conversation around barriers, those are some of those key areas that, that makes it very hard. And also, and I think the things you mentioned, you and I really grew to, are around metrics and data, uh, because that's where a lot of that, the implementation feels as well, is what are we measuring and, and, and how do we achieve that? So. I think in, teams, in terms of the operations, great, we have all the metrics there, uh, but in terms of embodied carbon, we, we should still achieve a few things by 2030, you know, that like the big ticket items there are less waste. So how do we build in, an, in a way that we uh, uh, waste less material when building? And you can actually already set some regulations around that, and there's some examples of that as well. There is also, uh, which I find a really interesting one, but it's, sorry, it's going a little bit in the retrofitting area and the existing built environment, is uh, the second biggest one in terms of the built environment where you can decarbonize is better use of space, of space we already have and adaptive reuse. So um, sorry to throw, uh, go a little bit outside subjects, but it is one of the key areas. Uh, and also uh, less concrete or low carbon concrete and less steel and more use of wood in, in of course, in construction. So I agree you want to set performance requirements rather than saying this is how you need to do it. And maybe we don't have all the metrics there, but we already know what, what, what things can really make big reductions. So I would argue for Yes, let, let's also look, look at that. And so maybe it's not as perfect as, as yet, but a big change. And it's larger, higher level district planning between all the agencies, how we electrify everything is such an important one as well. Have everyone working together more at a strategic level to make sure that we're getting who's looking after what parts of our transition to electrification, I guess, clear, but also. I think what you're saying is that some of the aspects of embodied carbon, even if we can't measure them now, we can still be saying we need a reduction in some of these key areas. So we could still be saying we want a reduction in the amount of uh, concrete or, or we want you to be using low, low emissions concrete. We, we can look at saying use less steel in your design. Now, the question that, that will come up, I think, logically to that, is that the role of planning 
or is that the role of the building system? <clears throat> so I was, I was going to talk about the role of planning in all of this in decarbonisation and, and follow on from some of the comments that people have said. So it's true, planning deals with placemaking at a site level. And if you're looking at a building, you know, you can clearly see that there are some things that are good at planning stage and some things that perhaps come down the track a little bit. But planning is also about, as a higher level purpose, it's about it's about planning our communities and our settlements, really. And so in that context, the goal of a net zero carbon built environment is very clearly relevant and appropriate to be in planning because climate change is, presents one of the biggest threats to our settlements and communities you know, of, all, of all time. And so to plan safe communities, we need to plan for a carbon zero environment. So I believe that it's got a very clear place in planning to have this net zero carbon goal. So if we assume that, as a designer of buildings, I know that at the very early design stage, a lot of the decisions are made, the decisions that you make determine the outcome at that very early concept design stage. And so unless you have a clear target or goal, and there's many goals on, on projects, unless you have those set at that early time, then it's going to be more difficult to deliver them down the track. And that's always been our position on why we consider this at the planning stage, because of the decisions that are made prior, before you even get to planning. So yes, you don't really need to know the U-value of a window at planning stage, but you do. Because if your goal is net zero carbon and you're designing an overall solution to that, then the U value of the window is going to be part of that picture. Because as Ewan said, that hierarchy is what you're working to and it's, and it's combined, it's intertwined. Does it make it difficult for the designers? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So planning used to be, back in the day, we used to sort of submit for planning at the end of concept design stage. You're almost all the way through detailed design before you know what you're submitting to planning. Okay, so planning has a role. We should be we should be thinking about the whole of that net zero equation when we're looking at planning, because even if we're not needing to finalise it at the planning stage, we need to know what's going on and what's going to feed into that that overall outcome that we're trying to achieve, uh, which which is important in the context of our broader strategic objectives in terms of what planning is actually seeking to do and actually to my mind gets to the fundamentals of why we plan if we're not if we're not planning for sustainable settlements and built environments then we we might as well kind of get get out of the way <laughs> um, and just let everyone build so i think to my mind from from listening to, to the to the conversations today it, it sounds like net zero uh, in the built environment is something that we need to think about in terms of a few different stages. So right now we need to be setting the objectives, we need to be locking in those operational outcomes, we need to be raising the bar in terms of the embodied uh, carbon outcomes, we need to be doing as much as we can to facilitate zero carbon outcomes in the waste and transport space. What about water? We haven't touched on water uh, at all. Uh, I know, for instance, in, in Victoria, uh, we have 
regulations around the water corporations and they all have their own objectives to get to net zero. Does that mean in the water space, we basically just need to kind of get out of the way in terms of planning and, and, and leave that to the water corporations? You and you're shaking your head, so I'm gonna hand the microphone to you first. <laughs> Thank you. To try and unpack a, again, a, another complex situation, we'll start potentially with the embodied carbon of our delivered water because there is an energy load and a carbon emissions profile associated with the water that comes out of our tap. That is the responsibility of the water corporations. And they have some of the most vigorous and um, active uh, energy efficiency, sustainable energy and, and carbon action plans that I've seen out of any corporate sector. So they're very active. There's a lot of pumps if you're a water authority and pumps use juice and there's a lot of opportunities for solar farming, et cetera. However, Gone are the days where we can just consider climate change in terms of mitigation or reducing emissions. In 2022, we have to think very carefully about adaptation and resilience going forwards in a changing climate. Therefore, water has a very important and um, fundamental, I guess, demand for attention now because the frequency of our rainfall is going to get wider and it's going to be more intense. So that means we have to change our gutters, our, our downpipe dimensions, our storage capacity, all these things we have to think about now. And also we need to keep our urban environments cool. And one of the best ways to keep them cool is with plants and green infrastructure and they need water. So we need to think holistically about our response to climate change and not just think about solar panels, double glazed windows. Yep, we've got to do that but we have to incorporate a response to integrated water management, which is now the term which describes water that we use inside a building, as well as the rain that falls on, on, a, on a site or on a building. For those reasons, when the city of Yarra started to draft a few ideas around what a zero carbon development might look like, we quite quickly spoke to our friends at the Council Alliance for a Sustainable Built Environment at CASB, where Natasha, works and uh, concurrently we're working on another project looking at planning reform and opportunities across a range of environmental categories not just energy and carbon but looking at integrated water management green infrastructure transportation a much more holistic package so we have today a really exciting opportunity to test um, some new draft um, planning scheme mechanisms. As I said before, with there's 24 councils working together with CASB, including the city of Yarra, and we have drafted and submitted to the planning minister an amendment with those 24 councils, an identical package, um, which talks to integrated water management, green infrastructure, climate adaptation and resilience, urban heat, as well as embodied carbon, operational carbon, transportation and waste management. So, that process has a rigorous and I think quite a wholesome democratic process of public exhibition and consultation, which we um, hope will be approved by the minister to go forwards, I would say after the coming state election, potentially. Um, I doubt it would be between now and November. And then we get to test, I guess, the appropriateness of these sorts of controls within a planning scheme um, and whether some elements that we've drafted may shake out of the process and end up in a different piece of legislation or regulation 
um, I think would be a healthy outcome. <laughs> and so I think actually what we're really missing is we kind of know where we're going. I think we've got the vision right. And there's great industry leaders already doing it. And there's great communities and people in their own homes just already doing it. What we're missing is a coordination of government regulators to work in a, an integrated and complementary fashion, which efficiently uses taxpayers' money to do it. So what, go, what should be in the planning scheme? What should be in the building code? What should be in plumbing code? What should be in other regulatory structures is yet really to be defined properly. Certainly, uh, it sounds like we do have a bit of a gap, if you like, in terms of some of that clear direction uh, from a state level in terms of what we're addressing uh, at different stages and different parts of our regulatory systems. So I just want to kind of wrap that up because I feel like we've got We've got a reasonably consistent uh, sense of what net zero means in the built environment across the panel, which is that we are talking about the operational energy primarily in terms of that electrification uh, and, and how the planning system can work on that. And that's something that we've got challenges at a strategic level uh, in, in supporting some of the, the, the transport planning and the waste, et cetera. But at a, at a lot scale, we're okay now. Even at a precinct scale, we're potentially okay now to deliver that. We've got some challenges around embodied, but we should certainly be thinking about it at a planning stage, not just at a building stage. And we've got a lot that planning can do in supporting and facilitating in, in, in the transport space. So one of the things we've touched on as well is that is the need to integrate that adaptation and mitigation so that we're not siloing uh, those two aspects of how we respond to climate change. So at the moment, we certainly, as I touched on before, we have an adaptation action plan. We don't yet have a mitigation plan for the built environment. So. I guess it'd be interesting to get your views on, you know, do we need to go back and revisit that adaptation action plan so that it's climate change response action plan as opposed to just adaptation? Or do we need to look at something uh, relating to mitigation separately and just kind of read the two together? What, what might be the best way of trying to coordinate some of those responses towards net zero that, that does encapsulate both that mitigation and adaptation. And I might, Ellen, you're, you're down the end and you were thinking about some of the big picture stuff. So I'm gonna hand, hand over to you with that. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. We, we can't really see mitigation and adaptation apart, but I think I would still argue for something similar like a mitigation action plan, because we're basically starting from scratch. We need to understand what institutions are going to deliver what. Uh, and one of your actions could be the integration uh, of it. So that will be really important. And, uh, and, and then we can have some longer term plans because, yeah, we need to set up the entire infrastructure and framework for how are we going to regulate this? How are we going to implement this? So it's a, basically a whole new policy area, which 
we're setting up, which we probably should have set up 20 years ago, but <laughs> let's not go uh, too much there. Um, I think that it's really that elevation in the regulatory hierarchy. So you, you probably also need to look at some of the, 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 the key acts and the planning act potentially and, um, and how that aligns with the climate change act you know that there is at that level it, it's important because for instance again to come back to that uh, urban heat uh, issue that we're looking at at the moment is why is a lot of that not uh, being implemented it's um, great wonderful efforts at the local level but uh, it all still then depends a bit on volunteerism and, and enthusiastic people and great but they need to have some power they need to have some funding behind it and they need to be uh strongly worded uh requirements about roles and responsibilities and you need to set it up high in the tree and really elevate it in the agenda and i think we are in the time now politically where we can start doing this we we see a lot of change happening now and i think the private sector sees that as well uh, we, we're quite involved in uh, all the, the projects rolling out uh, wind farms and all that and it's just mind-boggling the size of what's happening at the moment so uh, i think uh, government needs to respond to it at a similar level and, and really elevate that uh, regulatory framework and, and and put it in acts and make sure that you can't just rely on uh well-meaning and very enthusiastic people they should still be there but they need to have the funding and, and uh, the power of the machine behind it basically um we need to set our we need to set our uh i guess our expectations we need to set our frameworks about how we're going to assess and measure things at that state level so that we can support we need to maybe raise the bar and set minimum standards so that we can then support what's going on and all that enthusiasm and all that action that's happening at a local level that that's then supported and perhaps directed in a more efficient way so that we're all working towards the same goal uh, because I think that's one of the other things that, that we find challenging at the moment is that, and I think someone touched on it earlier, there's so many people doing so many things in this space, but what we don't have necessarily is the coordination of all of those people doing all of those things heading in the same direction. And there's so much power if we do bring everyone together and we do head, uh, head in that same direction. And Ellen, you want to say something? Uh, of course, is and that, and then we can learn from the adaptation area in, in that regard is what we have seen sometimes councils wanting to do the right thing, for instance, in locations along the coast at risk of erosion and all that, where maybe a developer still wants to build something, and then it might be challenged in, in a in a tribunal or a commission, uh, and councils sometimes lose or used to lose, and, and we need to make sure that the framework is there that they don't lose on that anymore that those are just requirements it's not a voluntary nice soft green thing to do it's reality it's the most important thing we need to do on earth that that provides the support that empowers all of those decisions that are being made so that we don't have people within the planning system being afraid to make decisions because that might get overturned at the tribunal because they don't have sufficiently robust regulation to support them and back them up I think it's a really important point. It's actually a really nice transition to the next question uh, and the next area that I'd really like to explore, which is really between technology and regulation. 
so the the theme of this year's festival of the urbanism really does look at technology and the role that technology plays uh, in the built environment. And it's a particularly interesting area, I think, in relation to climate change, given the speed at which not only the scientific understanding, but also the technologies evolving to meet the challenges that are in, in the kind of global context. So I think at the end of the day, planning is most commonly and arguably most effectively um, delivered through the statutory law that is our municipal planning schemes. And so one of the most common arguments against planning regulation, though, is that it can be too rigid um, and that doesn't provide sufficient flexibility to support innovation. So that's obviously particularly an important issue in the context of evolving best practice. So the next question I'm going to put to the panel is really what does good regulation look like in the context of a net zero built environment? So one thing we know is that you know, bad regulation or poorly worded regulation can actually stymie that transition that we need for business as usual. And so sometimes even with the best of intentions, planning can act against technology. And maybe a, a good example of that is, is things like household batteries. So, you know, we have, we have, you know, had proposals previously that, you know, we should put in the planning scheme that every new house should have space for a battery. Now, the technology in this space is evolving quite rapidly and and, uh, and there's probably some question these days about whether that's the most efficient way of managing our energy consumption you know does it need to be at a lot level should it be at a neighborhood level you know what about vehicle to grid and grid to vehicle charging there's there's a lot of change that's happening in that space and I feel like every every day there's uh you know there's a new uh window pane or uh, roof tile that's <laughs> that's invented that's going to that's going to um you know have, have have an ev so there's a lot changing in this space technology is evolving really rapidly so how do we get the regulation right in this space and you and i think you touched on it before so um i might I might ask you to start and then I think probably at, at a precinct scale, it'd be really interesting too to know what, you know, how do we want to frame our regulation so that it does the right thing whilst not preventing us from actually delivering that best practice, which, you know, best practice in two years time might be very different from, from today. And what we can do cost effectively might be even more different. <laughs> so I'm going to hand over again such a fascinating topic and um it is really challenging there are some really exciting technologies that i'm seeing proposed in real developments every day um, that we didn't think were really possible um, even 10 years ago for example there are now a number of solar share technologies available for strata subdivided apartment buildings this means you can have a solar array on the roof which is in the owner's corporation titled area and have allocated electricity to different apartments in a strata building. That technology is here, it's rolling out across Melbourne and Australia. We didn't think that was gonna be possible 10 years ago. So, and I think once the inverters pass Australian standards, the vehicle to grid revolution is going to hit pretty close. And that means your electric vehicle could be in your garage or the car park plugged into your house and you can use this energy storage in that vehicle as a two-way optimized system. Um, that's pretty close. So what makes good regulation? So in theory, a good regulation at a planning scheme, municipal planning area 
for buildings, not precincts, I'll talk about buildings, you can talk about precincts, um, I believe should be um, measurable, okay? It has to be quantifiable in real terms because the second thing, it needs to be enforceable and verifiable, okay? That makes it real. Otherwise it's greenwashing and we don't have time for that. So it's gotta be measurable and it's gotta be enforceable. And the third thing, it has to have enough flexibility to not stifle innovation. You can sort of capture that in the current structure of the Victorian planning scheme with um, a mandatory objective, for example, to be net zero carbon by operational energy and have discretionary standards around solar panels, building built form details that has some flexibility for architects and designers to kick around and optimize for their project as long as they deliver a measurable and enforceable um, objective of a zero carbon building. I don't think what we have drafted quite at this stage in our proposed planning scheme amendment is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. These processes need number of iterations and, and refinements, but that's essentially what we've attempted to do is to have a, a, a mandatory, measurable, enforceable objective and some discretionary standards to give guidance and to um, put a framework for uh, applicants to respond to. Um, one of the one of the things that good regulation looks like is where we can set really clear and unequivocal benchmarks what where, where we want to get to so that there's consistency and everyone knows what they're expected to do, but that that sets a benchmark doesn't tell you the how, it tells you the what. So for instance, one of the, one of the standards that I've seen floating around in various forums is you know, that 75% of your site area has to be responsive to the urban heat. So, so you've got a few different options for how you do that, but you have to hit that 75. You have to do that, that's measurable. But there's an infinite variety of ways that you can get to that 75, depending on your context, depending on your objectives, depending on your development. And I think that's what you're touching on, that, that, that we, you know, we, we set really clearly exactly what it is we want to achieve, but we don't necessarily say exactly how you have to do it. So we leave that flexibility for the, the designers, the developers, whoever else is influencing that, that development application. To, to do that. Is that the same kind of principles that you would apply to precinct scale, Peter? I think I totally agree with all the lot scale stuff. And I think that's where the planning system has its strongest influence for the, the zero net emissions. But I think the, the mandating to 2030 or um, prior to that is probably where we need to be considering because not having that short-term mandate makes it very difficult. The 2050 vision, as good a commitment as it is, it makes it very difficult for how we consider Increasing planning um, in terms of an emissions reduction response. And when I look at the Arden example, you know, it took a lot of collaboration, a lot of work, a lot of consultation to get where we were with the 2040 approach. Um, and there are limitations and barriers to achieving that, but also um, in terms of how it's enshrined in planning, um, a lot of it's discretionary and voluntary in terms of a local policy. So I think if we want to be really serious into the future, we will need to look at enforcement and mandating these controls. But at a pacing scale, I think there's an opportunity to do that initial feasibility and assessment in terms of like the overall whole of 
whole of precinct systems approach. So looking at waste, looking at water, looking at transport emissions. So we can undertake that assessment and we can ensure that we're not creating any barriers for future innovation or creating any barriers or de-risking the opportunity for um, achieving net zero into the future. An example with Arden is, you know, making sure that you've got that, the, the correct computer modeling to ensure there's no overshadowing and um, good access to rooftop solar so that you can achieve those performance-based targets, like you are saying. So in terms of, of precincts and, and mandating, we're obviously not, not quite there yet, but do we, can you just fill us in on, on what, what we're asking of, of these precincts at the moment? So uh, you, you talked about Arden, is that, is that assessment of, of emissions uh, and, you know, the opportunities to respond or mitigate those emissions something that, that's looked at at every precinct that's, that's being planned today? That's the, this is the first of, of the assessment with zero carbon. So it's, I guess it's going to be iterative and a bit of a learning process to see where we go from here. I think the, the initial learnings is we're heavily, heavily reliant at that subdivision stage and that permit stage for meeting those targets. And we're also heavy, heavily reliant on any state-based control. So there's a lot of government-owned lands and Development of Victoria have really, really strong commitments and um, recognise that there's probably just as much opportunity outside of the planning scheme as inside in terms of contractual arrangements, so development agreements that they will continue on with. So with the, with the precincts, you talked about some of the barriers that, that you'd come across in terms of Arden specifically. Are there, are there barriers to that precinct scale, I guess, ambition that, that you think might translate more broadly that, that might represent... Uh, I guess some of the challenges, you know, if we were to if we were to look at a, a, a roadmap towards kind of you know our zero emissions built environment, what are some of the real challenges that that you came across in that process that we might need to think about uh, going forward if we want to get get to that zero emissions space? I think one of the conversations that came up was about the um, performance based tools that we had at our disposal. So. We are very heavily reliant on industry tools like GreenStar, which I think is a great tool, but whether or not, and this is something I would post to others, whether or not there's a need for a state-based tool to intervene sometimes when it comes to that precinct planning to make sure there's another standard um, that can be measured for the state. But yeah, it's, it's a really challenging one because we are very um, mindful that the planning system is really controlled at that permit stage. Um, but we're just trying to get that fundamentals of planning right. Which goes back to the importance of getting that, that subdivision and lot scale regulation right. So that even when you've got the precincts setting the framework, it, your actual outcomes on the ground are still going to heavily rely on at that subdivision and development application stage. Yeah. All right. Ellen, do you have anything to add in, in that kind of space around, um, I guess, the relationship between... Uh, you know how we how we make sure our regulation is robust uh, and effective, given given the kind of changing state of play that we have. I think we touched on most of the relevant uh, aspects uh, already uh, in terms of what, what makes uh, good regulation. Um, I think in terms of when we also talk, spoke about technology before, I think 
maybe a tool that we can use a lot and, and help us is maybe maybe the digitization. Uh, we've got much more and more smart buildings, smart things, and smart cities. So we can there's enormous opportunity probably to uh, measure the operational sustainability and reduction of emissions, and and also adapt that and and smart system that's that that can talk to each other and how you distribute energy use within the neighborhoods and things like that so it's a little bit away from the regulation side of things but i think those two can potentially talk to each other and especially where you might have to start using some offsets here and there uh, that there could be some really good tools around there that uh, can help that to be implemented and if if we if we take a step back to, to you know the topic of conversation which was around some of those barriers and how we can overcome some of those barriers at a precinct scale perhaps one of the barriers may be that we don't have a, a, I guess a clear purpose-built tool if you like to to allow us to manage and assess what's going on at a precinct scale that we could perhaps apply more consistently across uh, across our precincts as we as we plan them and and certainly in Victoria we've got a lot of precincts that are being planned and and there's I've always been very interested in the precinct space because you know at the end of the day the precincts we're planning today they won't they won't be built for another maybe 10 15 years <laughs> between when we start the planning process uh, and that's past 2030 so um, certainly uh, I think someone said before we needed to start doing this 10 or 20 years ago. Um, that, so the precinct scale measurement tool we've talked about, we've talked about, uh, you and you talked about the, the, the measurement for embodied carbon and how we actually uh, look at that. So it sounds to me like a lot of the barriers we have at the moment are around how we measure and assess that net zero outcome. So, um... I'd argue that the CASB councils have been attempting to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions for 20 years through the use of local policy, which has um, embodied some of the things you've talked about, which is to have a higher level objective and then have a series of standards that allow the designer to choose the most appropriate response for each development. And we've developed a tool around that for buildings, which I'm sure you're aware of. The target there was a less bad approach, right? It was 40% or whatever it was, 20% less than what we're doing business as usual. So what's been the game changer for us? And, and I think it's where you're coming from in terms of we need to start mitigating. I'd argue that we've always been mitigating, but the game changer is the target, the net zero carbon target. That's the game changer. So that's where we need to start mitigating down to that. And so the work that we're doing that Ewan's referred to is changing this existing policy instrument that we have, it's local policy, from a mitigation to a mitigation adaptation and resilience approach to community and building planning. What has unfolded over the last couple of years with the planning reform that's gone on has been a, I don't know if devaluing is the right term, but a disempowering of the local policy instrument that we've been using. So this is reflected in the outcomes of the project that we've just been working on in that what those councils submitted to state government wasn't a local policy amendment. It was an amendment to the state scheme. And so 
what we're saying now is in local policy instrument through the planning reform no longer enables us to have that higher level objective that's deliverable through performance-based standards. So we need to use a different policy instrument. So that's why we went with that. But there's also the other, um, not just the, the other, the other point is that planning is um, comprised of a whole series of instruments from legislation, you know, right down to education or education right up to legislation. And, and so while we are working at what you might say is a detailed level at this, with this amendment, building by building, standard by standard, um, we're also seeking something that Ellen referred to, which is recognition that every decision we make about community planning, settlement planning, needs to be taken through a climate change lens. And for that to be seriously considered, it needs to be, in our opinion, legislated. And so we are currently advocating to the state government that there's a change to our planning legislation that links climate change. So that's pulling, pulling back out to the much bigger picture, uh, if you like. So am I, it touches on a question I was gonna ask too, because it sounds like we generally have an awareness of what bits the planning system should play. And there's a few things that we need to explore a bit further. There's a few frameworks that we need to develop. But I think you touched on it, that, that some of these things have kind of been in the planning schemes as, as policy for, for a long time now. A am I right in, in understanding from, from you and your, you're saying that the one of the shifts now is that it's not time for, we'd like you to do this anymore, but now it's time for you must have a zero emissions building because we're on a much more limited time frame for, for us to get there. So is that one of the key shifts? And is can, can you maybe talk a little bit or someone talk a little bit about why it's local government pushing that we must do this as opposed to perhaps at a state level where we know we have commitments to get to net zero. We have a Climate Change Act. We've got some really strong and great legislation around climate change. But why, why are we in the built environment space seeing the local government sector pushing for you must do this as opposed to, to any higher level? And that gets into the politics of, of things a little bit. But I think if we're talking about overcoming the barriers to a decarbonised built environment, uh, it's certainly, I think, something that we need to be aware of. Um, I don't know, Ellen or... Yeah, I think we, we're probably uh, going entering an area that's more entering into politics and maybe a bit of a philosophy around uh, democracy as well. And I think local government is probably the most direct level of it that we have in our democracy. And if you look at who do, do people trust most, it's often actually the local government and state and then federal government because the relation is most direct. And I think local governments often best understand uh, the needs and the worries uh, of their community. So maybe that's why often local governments uh, are ahead 
in, in what needs to change and leading the way. But it makes it also so much harder because there are many of them and they all maybe take a slightly different approach. Um, so um, I think uh, state government and especially national government is uh, catching up at the moment. So that's a really good sign. And uh, yeah, I think it's that those basics of democracy probably uh, explain the why in that regard, uh, why, why it's a bottom-up approach. And it's also, I think, in many ways, uh, a beautiful thing to see that, that it is, uh, you know, a, a very democratic thing uh, happening that uh, and, and, the, uh, and people are leading uh, that change. And yeah, we really need to see state government follow and, and uh, put those strong regulations in place and, and put the funding behind it. So there's, of course, because it's such a new policy area, uh, there, there's not a traditional stream of funding, like we've got funding for transport, we've got uh, funding for education, for health. Um, and now there's this whole sort of new area that also requires uh, at least similar uh, relevance in terms of funding and effort. And uh, I think that change and learning of the whole system uh, probably is uh, taking a lot of time. And again, we're losing uh, a lot of time that we don't have anymore, uh, which is frustrating, but we should certainly not give up and just, uh, yeah, more pressure on it, I would say. Thank you for the fabulous discussion. And it's great to see so many like-minded people putting so much mind power into this existential threat. Uh, my question is around along the lines of education versus regulation, because anyone who lives in Arden will inherently have a lot less carbon footprint than Willard or Officer, versus I think the, the, the most effective regulation would be to put a prize on the carbon that would drive the biggest change commercially. So any, any, any thoughts on this paradigm between how do you regulate versus educate? So people actually want to live in an apartment in Arden instead of a quarter acre lot in the office Is it top down or bottom up? You know, <laughs> which way do we go? It's not a choice. We have to do all of it and we have to do it now. So where there's an opportunity in planning reform or building code reform or carbon pricing or education, we need an integrated and, and, and comprehensive response. Otherwise, it won't work. Um, you know, who we vote for at the next state election and all those choices that we make as individuals as well as where we may work, um, we, we need all of it. And, you know, potentially we still need people marching in the streets as well and waving a banner just to remind people that, you know, this is still happening. Okay. Uh, we do have a couple of questions coming from online. Um, in particular, we've got Craig Burton. He presents us with two questions in the context of um, supply. So um, reading from Craig, um, I work in the building energy performance. Often expectations is on supply side, but it's zero carbon ready. Building is, uh, sorry, building rating for us uh, for green grid power. Sorry, so what are the risks of this entirely supply side focus? And secondly, probably I'll add to his second question. Uh, we don't have a price on carbon um, anymore, uh, but can we or should our embodied energy planning rely on hard limits on cement and steel manufacture? I might talk to the first question. I quite like the, um, the question around supply and demand of green energy in our 
society because it has to be like any economic system it has to be a combination of supply and demand to make it to work due to some technological innovations of efficiency and scale renewable energy now is cheaper to generate than fossil fuel energy we know that that's fantastic so in some ways there's some clear economic signals at the supply and generation side that uh, many renewable energy developers are making um, opportunity of uh, making the most of opportunity right now but we also need to create that demand and we can do that in our organizations and one of the clear ways that you we can all do that where we work is by purchasing um, green power and um, potentially looking at procuring a green power or renewable energy power purchasing agreement and speak to the business renewable center in sydney about how to actually go about doing that um, the city of Yarra was participated with the city of Melbourne and a number of other councils, and we basically bulk bought our electricity together. That gave us a really good tariff rate, which was quite cheap for 100% renewable energy, which is good for our ratepayers. But what that also gave was a 10-year risk mitigation to underwrite a financial loan for the development of those solar farms and wind farms to supply that energy. And that, what I, I think, is really exciting about pushing for zero carbon buildings at a planning stage because we've already had an interesting um, conversation between built form developers building apartment buildings and renewable energy developers who want to build solar farms and matchmaking those two parts of our industry together is something we've been active on it's quite exciting hi many thanks for your discussion i just wondering about planning scheme itself as it, as it has a lot of references to environmental acts and other state government legislation, why planning scheme cannot have reference to building codes and civil engineering standards when you're talking about measurements and measure goal. I understand it's not very possible to specify everything in a planning scheme, but considering it has a lot of references already, what's the difficulties to put additional references to alternative codes? Okay, so I, I think it's going to go to you in this question again, but that's the question of why why we can't put specific references to parts of the building regulations into our planning schemes. Well, there has been some attempts to do that, which currently have not been accepted, um, usually by the um, I guess the, the overseeing departments and areas within DELT. I think we will see a bit of a shift in this area because. At the end of the day, people wanted to build a building. So we need a regulatory environment between building and planning that talks to each other. We need it to be dovetailed and to reference each other so that it makes sense to an applicant what's required and it makes sense to a town planner at council what to, they expect to see and it makes sense to the building surveyor what they should expect to see. I think historically, one of the main reasons is because there's a separate act for building and a separate act for planning. And in some cases, we've had separate ministers and separate departments. It's not the case now. It's, it's almost like it's in, in a vortex, isn't it? It's almost like they're pretending that the other part of the regulations doesn't exist. And I think it's because they don't want to put a planning requirement in the building code or a building requirement in the planning code and step on jurisdictional toes because it undermines those governance processes they've set up for reforming the building code and reforming planning scheme so if they purposefully separated them i think for that decision making and governance structure reasons 
But now, particularly with the client emergency, I think there is a great argument to cross-reference them. And I think there's a great argument for them to look at that and perhaps do a bit of silo busting and talk better between those ministerial and departmental areas. Uh, yes, I wanted to ask about what role property developers are playing or might play either to assist or not assist in the processes that we've been outlining today. Thanks. I might go to Peter first, just for a change in terms of the, the I guess, the participation that you, you found from the development industry at that precinct level. One thing that I kind of gather from the conversation is that government's usually quite conservative and thinking that developers aren't there yet, they're not matured in this, in this space, but we find that on the ground that that's not the case, especially with our greenfield planning. So we're, we're planning, our structural planning is pretty simple. It doesn't duplicate on planning scheme information. So it's really just sets out their land use allocation and uh, how to fund it. But when it's actually getting built, there's so many really top developers like Land Lease and Fraser's group that are doing certification through Enviro development, um, through Green Star communities. And, they're doing a pretty good job of it. So I think I think the development industry is definitely there. Technology is not the issue. I think they want to see the signals from, from government policy really to make sure that you know they can be in step check with it. And even with the gas substitution roadmap that came out recently, I didn't hear that developers were that upset or confused about the situation about the approach to all electric precincts into the future. So I think I think developers are doing a pretty good job, but I'm not that close to the industry compared to probably some of you guys. Look, we've benefited from um, the experience that the local government have had with their development industry in terms of framing the work that we're doing. You know, Ewan talked about the case studies that are coming through the city of Yarra that have informed the zero carbon approach to, to planning policy. Look, the role of the role of property developers, it's, it's a big role. So we have another project where we're looking at encouraging the development industry and councils to support a more um, climate resilient placemaking approach to residential subdivisions. And we've, um, we've, we've developed a framework, we've drawn from a series of excellent case studies in Australia and internationally to develop that framework. We've had a bit of trouble rolling it out in a global pandemic and a resource constrained planning sector. But the, the I think this is where regulation will dovetail with work with the development industry because I don't think that it will um, that all aspects of this would necessarily be adopted unless there was a regulatory frame, framework. We often hear as the CASB secretariat, we often hear from the industry saying, do you know what, we don't actually mind what you do so long as you consistently apply it and everybody has to do it. And we've seen you know markets shift from that approach. And so um, enormous role, work with them, use their knowledge to help us develop frameworks and then um, work with them as we roll out regulation. So I'm going to basically summarise that to say the regulation is really important. Let's just put in the regulation to say we want a zero carbon built environment and make sure we're defining which bits we're going to do in which timeframes and then everyone's on the same playing field. We've got consistency, we're bringing up people who don't want to, we're supporting people who, who do want to, and we're moving forward. Okay, so we have one last question coming from Lisa, um, and she asked why prefab or off-site constructions 
are not yet well spread or supported, uh, despite the technologies being available? Is this an educational issue? I think I'm going to touch on that one very briefly because I don't think there's anything within our kind of planning system that says you can't do that. So I think it's probably just it comes down to that education side of things and people's awareness or understanding of the efficiencies that you can get in, in some of those construction techniques. But I'd just like to conclude by saying thank you very, very much to all our panel. I I think it's a really, really important conversation. I'm glad uh, we've started the conversation today. It sounds like to me there's a really important role uh, for regulation, but there's also some other things we need to think about, particularly around frameworks, capacity building and the like that, that we want to really focus on uh, if we want to get to a decarbonised built environment by 2030. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.